This morning we're going to be looking in once again to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're going to be looking at Mary's faith. And uh, as a one who is born and raised in the Catholic Church, um, the subject of Mary uh, sometimes, um, I think, gets the raw treatment. And uh, because of their theological implications about Mary, which are not scriptural, a lot of people avoid talking about Mary altogether because they don't want to be in any way accused of exalting her or lifting her up. But as Scripture says, she was exalted, and uh, she was the mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we want to uh, look at these uh, thoughts this morning from God's Word, and uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. But I want to ask a couple questions this morning. Um, do you have a plan for your life? Have you sat down, you prayed about it, you thought about it, you sketched out kind of an outline maybe what God wants to accomplish in you or what you want to accomplish for God, however that may work. And um, maybe it has to do with education. Maybe you're, you want to finish high school, you want to get into college, you want to get some graduate work done uh, by a certain date, time period. Uh, maybe it involves, your planning involves your family. Maybe you have a plan to get married and have some children or, or grandchildren or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe it's even a plan that deals with your own career, what you do personally for work, uh, goals to achieve, um, to kind of work your way up the ladder in your profession. Whatever those plans may be, they even may be plans that are merely recreational. You know, the first of the year is coming around. Maybe, you know, you have it on your little thing to lose so many pounds and start off the new year a little healthier and things like that. Maybe you have certain achievements you want to do in your own sports, whether it's tennis or golf or whatever it might be. Uh, maybe you're looking at a vacation that you're planning for in 2010. Whatever your plan is, I want to ask you, how important is that plan to you? How important is it? How would you feel if through a change in circumstances in your life, or maybe even by your own personal convictions, all of a sudden you knew that glorifying God most fully in your life would lead to trash all those plans. <laughs> Just put them in the trash and say, you know what, i got to start fresh. How would you respond to God? How would you feel toward God? Uh, for some of us... Um, that's already been something that's happened in our lives. We had a certain plan. We had a certain agenda. I know when I was going to school early on in college, I was going to be a police officer working on a degree in criminology. Well, God had a different plan. And we all could go around the room and tell our story of how God threw a wrench into our plans and exchanged them for his. Last week, we began our look into the Gospel of Luke dealing with Christmas. And you remember, we looked at Zechariah and we looked at the angel Gabriel when he came and he announced his plans, God's plans for Zechariah. And all of a sudden, Zechariah is old in age and his plans were incredibly revised. For years, Zechariah wanted a child. But in his old age, he basically even gave up the dream of ever having his own child. And yet, the angel says, now you're going to become a father. <laughs> and not just any old father, but you're going to be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah himself. This long-awaited Messiah that the people of Israel have been waiting for is going to come, and your son is going to be his forerunner. I mean, that must have forced Zechariah into a huge plan kind of review and to look at what's really important, what's not, how's this all going to pan out. There was a disruption, a disruption into his own plans, as in the cases any unexpected baby would be, especially at that age. But as the angel told, told Zechariah, we saw this last week, he says, this is going to be God's plan and you will have what? He said, joy and what? Gladness. That's what he told Zechariah. God's going to change your plans, but as a result, you're going to have joy and gladness. And as a result of that, 
Zachariah sees the link between the birth and the fulfillment of God's plan, and he raises the boy in his first years of life. And Zechariah most likely dies before John's beheading later in life. But this week, we want to look at this angel Gabriel, and he announces God's plan for Mary <laughs> to become pregnant. And you notice, as we go through this this morning, you're going to see that it doesn't say anything about joy and gladness for Mary. Um, Pregnancy for an unmarried young virgin in that society would have been very problematic. It wouldn't have been something that looked looked upon as, oh, you know, I mean, today we have an unwed uh, teenager, an unwed woman who gets pregnant. Socially, we just kind of say, oh, well, you know, whatever, we just kind of go along. Well, in their culture, it was just not something that you did. It was not a focal point for joy and gladness in her family. It was much more problematic for her to get pregnant as a young, unwed woman woman, than it was for Zachariah's wife. She was barren, but she was married. So God changed Mary's plans dramatically. And we want to look at how she responds. We want to look at... Why does she respond the way she does this morning? What lessons does Mary provide for us when God steps into our life and changes our our plans, rattles our cage a little bit? We're going to answer those questions along with others this morning as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. And we're doing this kind of in a cursory fashion, just kind of an overview. But we're going to look at it under two headings, God's inconvenient grace, number one, and then secondly, the joy of humility. God's inconvenient grace is the first thing we want to look at. Look at verse 26 with me, if you will. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, when this text opens here in verse 26, Elizabeth is basically six months pregnant. And as we learned last week, she remained kind of in seclusion. Didn't announce her pregnancy to anybody. And so Mary, even Mary, didn't know about this. Gabriel, the same angel that visited Elizabeth, goes to this obscure town. And and trust me, it is obscure. Nazareth was just barely on the map. Matter of fact, you remember what Philip said about Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of this place? You know, I mean, you can fill in your own city. I'm not going to name one around here. But, you know, you could look at that and go, man, can anything good come out of that place? That's kind of the the reputation that Nazareth had. And you think of the least, the place that you would expect least to give birth to a president or to a king or to a ruler or to a prominent business leader. And that place is today's equivalent of Nazareth. Well, Gabriel goes to this virgin who's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David. Now you say, well, that sounds pretty important. And it is in a way, it it talks about the Davidic line and the Messiah had to come from that. But David also had lots of descendants. And none of his descendants has reigned as king for hundreds of years. So for them, it's just kind of like, well, okay, he's a descendant of David. King Herod, the king of Judah, mentioned in verse 5, is not a descendant of David. Indeed, he's not obviously fully Jewish. But even King Herod is ultimately under Roman authority. And we learn elsewhere that, that Joseph here is a mere, what's he do? He's a carpenter. He's a carpenter. I mean, he has a profession. And so his family isn't poverty-stricken. He probably provides for his family. But neither Joseph nor Mary's family has any claim to prominence. None whatsoever. Joseph is a small-town carpenter, and that's about it. Well, Gabriel appears, and look at 
what he says. Um, he says, Rejoice, highly favored one, in verse 20, 28. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Greetings, O favored one. What is Mary's response? As we talked about last week, whenever anybody encounters an angel, the first thing that pops into their head is fear. <laughs> okay, for whatever reason, uh, the angels of the Bible are a little different than the little angels you have sitting on your bookshelves at home. All right, something strikes a reverential fear into the hearts of people when they're confronted with angels in the Bible. That's the usual response. She can't figure out how she is favored. She can't figure out how she is a recipient of grace, of God's inconvenient grace in this case. So Gabriel explains what he means in verse 30. He says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, because he knew she was, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Interesting little phrase there, found favor. Found favor. That expression is used over 40 times in the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word that is written here. Uh, it's a translation of, of the Old Testament word, and you see it over and over and over again. And by the way, it does not mean full of grace. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you used to pray, Hail, Hail Mary, what? Full of grace. The Lord's with you. That's not what this means. It does not mean she was full of grace. It's the same wording in Genesis 6-8 when it says Noah is found, said to have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or in Exodus 33-17 when it says that Moses is said to found favor with God. Now, neither Noah nor Moses merited God's favor. Instead, he showered it upon them. He showered his grace upon them. So Gabriel is saying here, Mary, God is going to give you unimaginable grace. He's going to lay on you a grace trip that's just going to blow your mind. And God is going to give you a privilege so far beyond what you deserve that you're going to be totally overwhelmed. Well, what is this grace? He explains it in verse 31 to 33. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name, what? Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The son of David. Look at how he, he describes her son. The son of the Most High, the son of David. He says he's going to be great. That he's going to reign over the house of Jacob, over all of Israel. His throne will have no end. I mean, that's pretty incredible. If, if God visited you and said, hey, you know, you're going to have a baby and, and you know, that's great. Okay, but when, he, when, when God starts telling you things like, you know, he's going to be great, he's going to be the son of the Most High, the son of David, I mean, th those are pretty endearing terms that God is using to describe Mary's son. Now remember, the Jews have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for the promised son of David to arise and to become their king. They've been waiting for this moment. And now Mary hears the angel say that her son, the one that she's going to get pregnant with supernaturally because she's a virgin, is going to be this long-awaited Messiah. This young girl from basically nowhere, has no history, no past, no real prominent background. She's chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. You remember how Zechariah responded last week when he was told by, by Gabriel that he and his, his barren wife were going to have a son. Do you remember? He said in verse 18, you can look back there if you want, how shall I know this to be true? Remember? He's asking for a sign. He asked Gabriel, how do I, I want to see your credentials. 
How do I know you're truly from God? It's interesting here that Mary doesn't ask for a sign. She doesn't. She's a little confused. She doesn't see how this is going to be possible. Because Luke has already told us that she's a virgin. That doesn't mean young woman. That means just what it says, virgin. Well, what's her response? In verse 34, all she says is, how can this be since I am a virgin? Her response to Gabriel shows that it is clear to her that this child is not going to be fathered by Joseph. And so she says, how's this going to work out? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any logical sense in my mind. I don't get the biology here. And Gabriel's answer simply, he simply tells her it's going to be a miracle. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That word there, overshadow. The idea that the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God will overshadow Mary. It kind of seems a strange word maybe to us, but it's used so much in Scripture, and what it does is it indicates the presence of God, literally. In Exodus 40, 35, when the Israelites complete the construction of the tabernacle, it says, the cloud of God's glory settled on it. It overshadowed it, same word. In Luke, the same words used in chapter 9, verse 34, when it says, the cloud overshadowed Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, right before God speaks to them out of the cloud. So this, this word overshadow, it draws attention to the simple fact that this is going to be a miracle from God's hand. And it's a miracle of God's presence with Mary. She didn't ask for a sign, but Gabriel in verse 36 is going to give her one anyway. In verse 36, he says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she's saying, hey, if you're, if you're wondering if this is impossible, Mary, don't worry about it. God's got it all taken care of. He says, and this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. And then I love this verse, for verse 37 says, for with God nothing will be what? Impossible. Say that aloud with me. Ready? For with God nothing will be impossible. That is so important that we understand the nature and the character of the God that we serve. God isn't the kind of God that steps into Mary's life and says, oh, you know, uh, you're going to have this super Messiah baby and it's going to be going on, okay, and you've got to go figure it out on your own. <laughs> God takes care of the whole thing. He says, don't you realize that nothing is impossible with God? When's the last time you looked at your own life and you realized that, wow, things aren't lining up the way you want them? Your little plan is maybe getting jostled around and, and starting to fall apart. You've got to go back and you've got to remember, you know what? God has a plan and a purpose and nothing is impossible with him. Well, what's her reaction? How did Mary react to this news? I mean, she could have said, what, me, pregnant? Are you kidding? <laughs> what's Joseph going to think? This is, this is really raining on my parade, God. This is not how I planned it out. What are my parents going to think? I was looking forward to just being a simple carpenter's wife in this little town called Nazareth. Can't we just leave that alone? Pick somebody else. She could have responded that way. In Exodus 4.13, that's how we see Moses' response, doesn't he? When God taps him on the shoulder and says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. And Moses starts making excuses. Oh, no, I can't talk, God. I can't do this. Oh, no, what if, he, you know, and he comes up with all these things. Maybe you've responded that way when God's tapped you on the shoulder and said, you know what? I want to work in and through your life in a certain way. 
How do you respond when God convicts you of something? Maybe it's your own sin. Maybe it's your pursuit of him. Maybe it's even your service to him. Maybe he's shown you to do something. Maybe there's something that you know, even as you sit here this morning, that you should be doing, that God made it clear to you. But in your own heart, you're going, oh, no, 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 that's for other people. It's not for me. God, just leave me alone. I'm comfortable. I'm doing what I have to do. I'm doing well enough. Thank you very much. We've all been there. We've all come to that point where we have to make a decision. And Mary, look at what she says in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant, or the Lord's slave, maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Wow, what a response. I mean, wouldn't it be great that if we could respond that way when God taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, change of plans, here's the new agenda, pal. Wouldn't it be great to say, hey, you know what? You're calling the shots. Let's, let's just go with it. Rather than raise our hand, oh, wait, 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 wait. You know, I was, I was going to do this. I already prepared all this. And now you want me to go in this direction? Well, you know, that doesn't make sense, God. That's kind of a last-minute thing. We don't do things last You know, and we get all in a kind of a, a big fit over God throwing a monkey wrench into our plans. She says, I'm the Lord's slave. When's the last time you thought of yourself as the Lord's slave? When's the last time you got out of bed and said, God, you know what? Whatever you want me to do today, I just want to do it. I want to do it to the best of my ability. I want to do it filled with your spirit. I want to do it as onto you, not onto men, not to be seen by men. And let it be done according to your word today. Well, Mary receives this great grace from God. This privilege of bearing this long-awaited Messiah. But it's a great, incredible grace, but it's also an inconvenient grace. I mean, things radically changed in her life, no doubt. This was nowhere on her radar screen. This didn't even fall into the, maybe the, the, the plans that she X'd off. Be the mother of the Messiah. You know. Well, that would never happen. You know, I'll put that in the, the file 13 thing. No, this was not even on her radar screen. I mean, she obviously had many expectations. Young girl getting ready to be married. Many plans for her life. But Mary, you see here, she shows great faith and great wisdom, and she forgets about her own plans, doesn't she? She has faith in God's promise to her and to her people. In Proverbs, basically, to sum up what Proverbs is about, it talks about a lot about wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And wisdom basically can be described this way. Wisdom is seeing who God is, seeing how he rules the world, and responding accordingly. That's real wisdom. See, so many times when we look at it, we look at who we are, and we look at how we want to rule our lives, and then we respond accordingly. God says, no. True wisdom, biblical wisdom, is seeing who God is and seeing how he rules the world and seeing how you fit into that. She's learned about God's character. She's learned a lot about his love, his concern. She knows how he rules the world through studying his word. And she's ready to respond with wisdom and with faith to his calling. I want to ask you this morning, are you ready for that? Are you ready to respond like Mary responds? Will you respond when God taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, by the way, uh, I'm going to throw some inconvenient grace your way. Your, change are about, your, your, your life is about to change. Your plans are about to change. I know you didn't plan on this, but here's, where, here's the road we're going down. I pray that you'll respond with wisdom and faith like Mary did. Well, the second thing I want to look at is not only this inconvenient grace that he gave Mary, but also the joy of humility that we see. It's highly unlikely that Luke gives us the complete account of what actually was spoken here in this conversation between Mary and Gabriel. 
Mary knows she's going to become pregnant soon. That's the way verse 39, basically it tells us there, she went with haste to see Elizabeth. I mean, she was excited. She wanted to go see Elizabeth because she knew that, wow, what's happening here? No one else is likely to believe her story that she's pregnant because <laughs> she's a virgin. No one else is going to be able to share her joy like this elderly relative who is also now pregnant via God's miraculous hand. And so Mary enters Elizabeth's house and they greet each other. It says there in verse 41, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. See, this is important right here because Elizabeth could have reacted in the flesh, but she didn't. She's filled. Remember last week we talked about being controlled by the Holy Spirit. She's controlled by the Holy Spirit. So she's going to respond the way God wants her to respond. And verse 42 tells us what she spoke. It says she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So Mary enters Elizabeth's house. They greet, she greets her. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, it says the baby leaped in her womb. And Mary was, or Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. And she cries out that, that, that phrase, Blessed are you among women. I like this verse here because it almost, it's a good right to life verse if you think about it. Um, verse 15 tells us that the infant John is filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's what it says. And now here in verse 41, he leaps when Mary greets Elizabeth. More importantly, in verse 44, the Spirit filled Elizabeth interprets this action saying the baby leaped for joy. See, if this infant still in the mother's womb can be filled with the Holy Spirit, if he can leap for joy in response to the presence of the Messiah, there's no question that he is a human. Babies in the womb are human beings, beloved. I mean, that's not the major point here, but it's an important point to make. Elizabeth's response here makes clear whose son is most important. Because she cries out to Mary. What does she say? The mother of what? My Lord. She knows Mary's son will be the Messiah. The long-awaited descendant of King David. And then in verse 45, it highlights the reason for her to honor Mary. Should we honor Mary? Yes, we should. Should we worship Mary? No. Big difference. We honor Mary not because she was perpetually a virgin, as the Catholic Church teaches, because she wasn't. She had other children. We honor her not because she's a co-redemptress, mediatrix of our salvation. Scripture says that that can't be. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary has no place there. We honor her not because she's full of grace, as the Catholic Church teaches. They believe that she's overflowing with merit, and somehow if we can tap into the merit of Mary, then that will help us in our struggle for salvation. But the Bible clearly says that there's none righteous, no, not one. That includes Mary. That even includes the Pope. See, we should honor Mary for the same reason Elizabeth honors Mary. Verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. One of the first reasons that Mary is to be honored is because she was a woman of faith. Simply put, she was a woman of faith. She believed God. And not only that, but she acted on her belief. Her plans for life were turned upside down. And now she follows God faithfully, 
down this corridor of faith. She doesn't know where it's going to end. She's a wonderful example of a woman who has put their faith, their trust in God. And she begins to express her response to God's work in this incredible song, beginning in verse 46. It says, my, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Some of you know Lorna Amata Goodwin. She actually wrote a song dealing with this whole text. It's an interesting little song because in a lot of ways it's, it's poetical. And so there's a lot of parallelisms here that we see in this, this text. When she says there, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. These two lines are parallel to each other. Just like in the book of Proverbs, a lot of times they have little parallel verses. Mary restates her idea. The first statement there, my soul parallels my spirit. Lord, here standing for the name of God, Yahweh, the God of covenant, is in parallel with when she says, God, my Savior, the one who is promised, who will be delivered, who will deliver his people. So Mary here clearly is a woman of faith, but she also magnifies the Lord. I was trying to find a big magnifying glass to show you this morning. Because if you stop and you think that word magnify, what does it mean? The magnifying glass, really, it increases the apparent size of anything as we look through it. You can even hold it up to your eye and it looks, you know, boy, your eye is really weird looking if you're looking the other way. But stop and think about it. How can Mary magnify the Lord? How can we magnify the Lord? Can we make God bigger than what he is? Isn't he already as big as he can get? John Piper uses this illustration, and I think it's a great illustration. He says, we magnify God the way a telescope magnifies a star. The star is huge. So huge, it's beyond our comprehension. Yet it appears to us as a tiny speck of light. And the telescope makes it appear a bit larger to us, and thus a bit more like its real self. He goes on, he says, just so with God. When we magnify him, we make him look more like he really is. See, in this world, in our culture, God appears small. God appears insignificant. God is but an afterthought in the lives of most people. But when we magnify him, He is still far, far short of showing his glory to those around us. But when we magnify him, we make him seem a little more significant. And so the parallel here between magnify and rejoice shows that Mary magnifies the Lord through what? Through her joy. She's counting this a joy. I mean, think about it. If she went along with God, but she moped the whole time. Oh, you know, stupid pregnancy, you know, she's, what are people thinking? Kicking up the dust and just moping the whole time she's carrying out God's plan. Would that be magnifying God? No. Sometimes I wonder with some believers, you know, God gives them a, a task to do or a gift to use or whatever, and it's kind of like, it's almost like pulling teeth. I mean, some some people are so gifted, so talented in so many ways, and yet the last person they would ever think of using that gift and that talent for is God in the service in his church and serving other people. And then when they do it, it's kind of like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. Oh, gee. No joy. That's not magnifying to God. It's better you just don't do it. You're not going to do it with a joyful heart as unto the Lord. She would have been diminishing God if that would have been the case, not magnifying him. And 
That attitude would imply that her plans are more important than bearing the Messiah. But that's not what she does. Instead, she sees that God has showered her, His grace down upon her for this task. He's lifted her out of this mundane situation and given her a great task. And He's also given her the great grace that she needs to get through the task. He planted this baby in her womb. And He's going to do everything that's necessary to enable her to fulfill her role. And as a result of that, she's rejoicing. And she magnifies God. She shows that God is her all in all. She explains that she's so joyful about this because that's why she magnifies God. In verse 48 and 49, she explains, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She wasn't thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. Here I come. Get out of my way. Start bowing down right now. She wasn't thinking that at all. She was thinking, man, I can't believe this is happening to me. God showered his grace on me and taken me out of this humble estate of a servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's not looking at herself and saying, yeah, I deserve it. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. When's the last time you got down on your knees and you thanked God for doing mighty things on your behalf? Because great is his name. It's not about us. I mean, some people get saved and they think they're God's gift to the church. You know, without the church, man, the church wouldn't go anywhere without me. That's the wrong attitude. Mary didn't have that attitude. God looked on her humble estate. He could have glanced at her and rejected her. I'm not going to use somebody like that for the Messiah, my son. Are you kidding me? This kid has nothing going for her. No prominence in her background, nothing. She's going to be the husband of this carpenter guy. Big deal. From Nazareth? Are you kidding me? But instead, he looked at her and he chose a nobody. And that's what Scripture says. You know, salvation comes to those who are nobodies. Salvation comes to those who are humble. So Mary says here, basically, you know what? I'm a nobody. I'm not important. My plans aren't important. God is everything to me. He's the mighty one. He's done great things for me. I don't know why, but he's done it. So now everyone in the future, all these generations, will call her blessed by God. They're going to look at Mary... Not because of who Mary is, but they're going to look at Mary and say, man, God has blessed this woman. And this is going to continue forever because Gabriel says his kingdom will have no end. Mary clearly believes this prophecy. She believes in the might of her God. She rejoices in it and she magnifies him, not herself. She concludes that section there. Holy is his name. Sums up her praise. He is pure. He is right. He is just. He's different. Does things a little differently. But she knows that she's not holy. She's nothing. That's her attitude. But with great grace, God has touched her and he's blessed her and he's empowered her. And so she rejoices and magnifies him. And then beginning in verse 50, she begins to turn the attention away from herself. And she begins to turn it to God. She changes the focus. See, God has a plan of redemption that's set in time before the beginning of time. And now Mary, here she is, this young nobody woman who God chose, she stands at the focal point of that plan with this infant Jesus in her womb. I mean, she doesn't even understand her role completely. She definitely doesn't understand his role. But she knows enough to offer these great words of praise. 
And it begins and ends with general statements in verses 50 and then 54 and 55. It's set kind of the themes here. And the middle verses, 51 to 53, speak of specific ways that God shows his love. Well, when we consider these verses here, let's ask three questions. What, when, and to whom? What, when, and to whom? Look at verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. What? His mercy. His everlasting love. This verse alludes to Psalm 103. The theme here is God's mercy, his steadfast love, his covenant love, his faithfulness to the promises of our salvation and his people. Well, when is this mercy expressed? Mary says from generation to generation. The psalmist says from everlasting to everlasting, if you look up that verse, to the children's children. It's a simple way of saying it's always expressed. The mercy of God is always there to be tapped into. He was even working over the past 400 years when this promised Messiah was on his way. And even though it seemed God was silent, he was still working. And God is even working today in your life, in mine. Even when it seems and it feels and maybe it looks like he's abandoned you. Don't believe that. God's mercy is always there. It's always ready to be tapped into through the Lord Jesus Christ. To who this mercy is expressed, notice that she doesn't say, oh yeah, to all my descendants of Abraham... The physical descendants of Abraham, those are the people that are going to tap into God's mercy. Those are the only people because they're God's chosen people. No, he doesn't say, she doesn't say that. She says, to those who what? Fear him. That's who this mercy is available to. Proverbs tells us that. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, if we have no fear of God, beloved, what does that reveal? It reveals our pride. We think that we are everything. We're not going to fear anybody, especially God. Who is God? Fear leads us to keep God's covenant. If we don't have fear, then we're prideful, and God rejects the proud. You look at verses 54 and 55, and you ask the same three questions. It says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring. What's the theme? His mercy, once again, his covenant love. When is it expressed? Forever. To whom is it expressed? His servant Israel, his covenant people. And I think that it's, it's so important that we embrace that and realize that what Mary is saying is that this, this same mercy, this same grace that was showered upon her is available to us. He goes on, she goes on, and she lists some of the ways that God has shown this mercy and this grace. See, as Mary sees it, she deserves nothing from God. Nothing at all. Zero. But you know what? Like so many throughout history, she receives great grace. She receives great mercy from him. She overflows in joyous praise. I mean, she could have bellyached her way through the whole thing, literally. She could have focused on all the plans that she had to set aside to do the plan of God. I mean, you hear sometimes, you hear certain pastors speak and, you know, they'll tell you about how much they sacrificed to go into the ministry and all, all this stuff. And, and I'm thinking, man, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I just couldn't, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, it's such a, a, a privilege that is just, it's totally God. We have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what about ourselves? Do we humble ourselves before God? Do we admit our need for him? Are we joyous in the things that he's laid out for us to do? We might sit there this morning and say, well, you know, I'm not chosen to be the mother of Jesus Christ. 
I'm not chosen to do anything important. So how does this apply to me? Obviously, what Mary did was very important. You know, it was a task that God gave Mary to fulfill, and she did it willingly. I mean, as great as it was, God has a task for you to perform. God has a way that he wants to work in your life like no other person with your giftings, with your talents. And like Mary, you will only accomplish God's task by setting aside some of your own plans, being willing, willing to lay them all aside, really. Who knows what 2010 will hold? Nobody knows. We can't sit here and say what's going to happen, happen in 2010. And that should show us that we shouldn't get comfortable in our present state. We shouldn't be willing just to sit back and just kind of let things go. We, we should be praying. We should be asking God, God, what is your plan for me? What do you want to do through me in 2010? I mean, think about Mary at this point. What does she think God will do with her son? I mean, she knows he's going to become king. That's what the angel said. In her head, undoubtedly, becoming king means gaining honor, gaining glory in this world. Think about it. See, she does not understand at all the path to kingship leads through the cross. She doesn't get that yet. I mean, stop and think about some of the difficulties that Mary as a mother is going to face. I mean, she saw her son do things she never expected anybody to do. And she couldn't understand it at the time. She saw her son misunderstood, then feared, then even hated by the religious leaders of her day. She even saw her son, her, her, her beloved son, this perfect child. She saw him whipped. She saw him crucified by the Roman officials. See, Mary found favor with God. But I want you to mark this down. Finding favor with God does not lead to an easy life. It didn't for Mary, and it won't for you. Her statement, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When she saw and she understood part of God's great plan, that's what she said. She didn't see the whole thing yet. And we need to learn from her example, I believe, to live a life of humility, to, to live a life that, where we acknowledge God for who he is. That we live out our lives for who God is, not for who we are, what we want. That we need to rejoice in God our Savior. And even as he upsets our plans and maybe even leads us through times of intense suffering and pain and tribulation, we have to stop and say, you know what, he's looked down on our humble estate. He has chosen to use us for his good and for his wise purposes. I ask you this morning, are you within God's plan for your life? Are you a recipient of God's promises? Is God working for you? Can you rejoice in God your Savior? I remember when I was praying for the city council meetings. They called me up one Monday. I was supposed to go in Monday night, and they said, you know, it's kind of been some problems with the way you're closing your prayers. And could you just not say, in Jesus' name? Because somebody on the council was offended by that. And I thought, well, first I got kind of angry, and then I thought, well, I'll pray about this and see. And so I get to the meeting. And the council member comes out and says, hey, you know, I really appreciate you coming. I know hopefully there's no misunderstanding here. And I said, well, what is it exactly? They said, well, every time you prayed, you, you, you prayed in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Jewish. He's not my Lord and Savior. That offends me. 
So I thought, okay. So I'm sitting there, okay, how am I gonna, what am I gonna do? And got up and said a couple words and read a couple verses and then prayed. And the whole time I'm praying, it's like I'm not praying. I'm thinking, how am I gonna end this prayer? And at the end of the prayer, I simply said, and I pray in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I thought, okay, his objection was R, I'll put my, it's a personal thing. And as soon as I opened my eyes, our eyes met, and I could see anger and frustration on this individual's face. And sat down, and they took care of some business, giving away some awards or whatever. And, and at the end of this little award, they took a little break, and the guy made his way over to me. He goes, you know, I was really angry at you. You could probably tell because you basically defied what I asked you to do. But then I thought about what you said, and you did change your prayer. You said, my Lord and Savior. I can't deny that to you. And I thought, wow. My question to you this morning, is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? That doesn't happen by coming to church. That doesn't happen by doing good works. That doesn't happen by trying to live a good life. Because all those things before God, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. I ask you this morning, have you bowed your knee to the risen Lord? Have you come to terms and grips with your own sin? Do you understand there's no way out of that except through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? That he gave his life on Calvary. He died a cruel death by anyone's standard. And he did it willingly, and he did it for you. He did it for your sins, for everything that displeases God in your life. That's why he died for you. And he wants you to come to him. He wants you to put your faith, your trust in him. Even if you don't understand and you don't even know how to believe, ask God to help your unbelief. He'll do that. Let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll close this portion of our service and then we'll sing a couple songs and prepare our heart for communion. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for Mary's faith. And Lord, I thank you that you showered on here on her an incredible amount of grace. And then we saw how she was joyously magnifying you. Lord, I pray that we could emulate that in our own lives. I ask, Lord, that somehow that you would take our feeble faith and maybe our circumstances that seem so far out of whack right now that we would surrender those to you. And Lord, that we would see you and your grace come upon us in a way that we could never even imagine. Lord, I pray for each individual here this morning that you would give them a sense of purpose in their life as they seek to serve you, as they seek to yield their life and their plans over to you. I pray for those who may be in this room who have not put their faith and trust in you. I don't know the reason. You do. But Father, I pray that you would be gracious to them that you would give them a heart of understanding, that you would remove the blinders from their eyes, Lord, that they could see maybe for the first time their need of a Savior. Lord, we ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.